The subject <coughs> for the evening talk is our relationship to the world. If we look at this world with our ordinary, everyday mind, it appears to us, at least initially, rather simple. We might say, we might conclude, <coughs> here I am, as a person, as a human being, living in this world, and when I look around me, I see that the world is full of a variety of similar and dissimilar things, living and not living, and I have different kinds of relationships with all of these things. So I look at the world around me, I see that this is what the world is, I see that here I am living in this world, and basically this is what life is, this is what it's all about. And <coughs> I may have a little doubt about this. And I was reminded, in fact, of this little doubt actually at tea time, which um, served, one might say, not only food for the stomach, but also, as it turned out, um, food for the mind as well. And what I'm referring to was, um, you may have had this evening a somewhat um, similar experience as Carrado and I did, in that when we were collecting the food, there was one of the bowls had a quantity, let us say, of yellow stuff in it. And I assumed, on seeing this bowl, that it was either margarine or butter. And Carrado told me at um, tea time that he thought, in fact, it was custard. And thus <laughs> took, understandably, proportionally more. <laughs> and looking through our senses, through our eyes, it either could have been margarine, butter, <laughs> or, or custard, and as you probably realized, it uh, turned out to be salad dressing. And the only way that one can actually realize this is through another sense than the eyes, through taste. And that told us what it is. And I wondered in that whether or not that may say <coughs> or communicate in a small way to us with regard to our actual relationship to life. We are so used to looking at it in a particular way and we look around the world of other human beings and we see that the great majority of them also look in a somewhat similar way. Therefore we assume, ha ha, that's the way that it is. 
And to have just a little doubt about this uh, confirmed way of living opens up the opportunity for all of us as human beings to engage, to engage in inquiry, in explore, exploration, inwardly, and into a, another kind of relationship and therefore another kind of, of adventure with life. If one looks at the world from the normal everyday mind with the Western conditioning, which we must um, include within that, it is highly probable for us that we feel within ourselves the need, the desire to prove <laughs> ourselves in this world, to show to ourselves and to show to other human beings that within this world of people, things and myself, that one can be successful. So there's the world around us, there's our relationship to this world, and through various channels we wish to prove ourselves to be successful in this relationship. And we may <coughs> spend a considerable period of our life, possibly all of our life, working through life to try to prove one can be successful within it. And with that particular structure, we regard, understandably, education as being very important, as uh, a career as being very important, and equally to go with it, constant affirmation from other people to tell us we are okay, we are dealing with this world, we are being effective in this world, we are somebody. But just supposing those doubts which sometimes come up with regard to that kind of relationship to life, is actually allowed to develop a little bit more. Generally speaking, if we allow that to happen for a few minutes, or something of a theme in our life, inwardly, emotionally, psychologically, from the standpoint of security, it's going to be very challenging. Because we've shaped, our mind has been shaped to look at life in this particular way and only to look at it this way. And so it often seems that when we look at the society, Sometimes we end up dividing it up between the so-called 
successful and the failures and those who are endeavouring to be successful. And all of that is part of that process of me, them and that. There's an old Zen saying which goes, if I remember it rightly, um, before I began practice, mountains were mountains. After I began practice, mountains were no longer mountains. When I came to realization or whatever, mountains were mountains again. This is a very nice idea. I would put it differently. I would say, before a person begins practice, looking at the mind, what other practices there? Before one begins practice, mountains are not mountains. While one is practicing, mountains are still not mountains. And when one has come to realization, mountains are still not mountains. <laughs> <laughs> so once one has a doubt about the accepted order of things and the way that life has been prescribed to us and what we have believed in, in, in when we have come to doubt about that, then this difficulty real difficulty, existential difficulties, personal difficulties, inward difficulties in our relationship to life really can start touching. Because the reference points and the order and the direction for us is not as clear as we thought it to be. And so it's not surprising when we are in some kind of transition in our life from what was familiar to what is unfamiliar, that transition period, as we know, is often a very insecure period. You've been in a relationship, the relationship has finished, you're, you're making a change in your life, it's a very insecure period. You've been in work, you've been in study, you're coming out of that, and then one moves through a transitional period. And in any kind of transition in which the familiar world is not so familiar for us, the wish of the mind is to get back to what is familiar as quickly as possible because it feels better. It feels more secure, it feels more like home, it feels safer. And this, this period of time, of transition, either because it's been imposed upon us through something in the world stepping out of our life, or because we have that healthy doubt about the construction that we believe in, that transition is one of the most precious life experiences. Precious. 
not ugly, not terrifying, not awful, but marvellous and, and valuable. And I wonder what it is going to be for us in which we come out of the conventions of our mind and the typical, typical ways of looking at the world to, to other ways of looking which are different. Let us, <coughs> let us just look for a moment in one or two areas. For two or three days now, we have been, to varying degrees, looking at the breath. Now the breath is, the m how ordinary and everyday can it be, the breath? First thing, in our beginning of our life, it starts with breathing, the end of our life is breathing. None of us can go more than about three minutes without breathing. If we do, we're in trouble, and so there is this constant breathing experience. Most ordinary, most everyday. In that, it can just be mechanical and habitual. In that working with the breathing, such as, say, with the guided um, meditations, and sometimes out of our own volition, when looking at the, at the breathing, we begin to see a little bit more the impact that the breathing has. We begin to see a little bit more clearly about the state of our body, about the pressures and the tensions and the blocks and so forth. We begin to sense that maybe the body is not such a, a solid, fixed lump, which we, as it were, move around the world. But, but perhaps it's more dynamic. Perhaps there are more places of tightness and tension, places which are open. And perhaps just in being with the breathing, the relationship to the body just begins to change a little. And sometimes we're experiencing pain with the body. And this pain comes out. And with the pain, there comes the wish and the tendency of mind to want to put words to the pain. The pain is killing me. This pain is my fears, or it's my tensions, or these unpleasant sensations, or my uh, anxieties, or this is old stuff, or whatever it might be. And there is the bare experiencing for us of what is taking place, and then we want to put a description to it, words to it. And in putting words to it and fixing it, ha-ha, we've got it back in our familiar world. It's me who's in pain. I'm having a terrible time on this <laughs> retreat. My body is suffering. I'm, I'm suffering. Well, it's not too bad because this is the familiar world, whatever. And so that view fits in very nicely with my ordinary, everyday mind. 
I am like this, the world is like that, we're trying to get on with each other and it's killing me. <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes we have been exposed either through our thoughts or through the professionals or whatever to realizing an important thing to see that the past has got something to do with the present. So we're experiencing pain and then <coughs> in our experience of it we wonder why is it here? Then we think, well last week, last month, when I was a child, when I was in the womb, maybe in my past lives or <laughs> whatever, this is causing it. So this also very comfortably fits in with the world view. The world view that this is life, this is the state of the body, there is the past, and the past influences and establishes this condition. And so it all belongs to this familiar world. And it's such a familiar world for us that our words and our concepts and our labels and our language, all of that helps in an enormous way to make the world what it is for us. Like nothing on earth can do, words, language, interpretation will fix our world the way that it is. And we see, well, of course it does that. Of course we, we say, this is an arm, and this is aggression, and that is the floor, and these are people. And all of this helps to fix, to shape the world, make it feel familiar with our language. And we see, too, that with the language and the fixing of the world, that some of the words have quite some weight for us, some force to it. Sometimes it's something very familiar, a person's name, or a place, or a particular possession, or a particular mind state, the very word to supposedly to describe that makes that very important. Then other things in the world are not so important. And all this is familiar, 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 every day, every day. I wonder, I wonder whether spiritual work, inquiry, the challenge and the adventure of looking fully at life is to make us just a little bit more clearer about the everyday world and our everyday mind in relationship to it. I wonder if that is what is called in the scriptures, in the texts, seeing things as they are. Now in that relationship to the world, in the ordinary relationship to the world, we would say, in that relationship, or in my relationship to the world, there are some things which I have and I possess, and some things which I don't. This is mine, that is not mine. 
if somebody steals something which is not mine, oh dear, what a pity. <laughs> but if somebody steals something which is mine, oh my God, what whatever. And so around mine is great seeds for suffering. Great, great seeds for suffering. Anything which one possesses can be an instrument for suffering. Anything which one is particularly identified with can cause great confusion, sorrow, sadness in one's life as well as give one a great deal of pleasure and happiness. Someone says, well, this is how I live, this is everybody lives, mine, not mine, not mine, never mind, mine, oh, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> so we're now looking at our relationship to the world. A person may say, well, obviously, can I be happy and not have possessions? Can I be happy and not have things which are mine? Because what's mine, that ring which I which my granny gave to me, it has such sentimental value. This gives me so much pleasure to have this possession, this place, this money, this da-da-da-da. And so one might say, if one is inquiring and looking at the conventional mind, one aspect of that is one is going to look very carefully at anything which one considers mine. Any clinging, possessive, identifying relationship with anybody, inwardly, outwardly, great or small. But still one would say, all oh right, one looks at that, one looks at this possessiveness, this clinging, this mine, me and mine, mine, mine. And perhaps in that observation, the pure observation, perhaps some of the clinging and identifying with the my factor gets reduced. So that the relationship to life becomes more balanced. Less sense of division of mine and not mine. If that was occurring, just that in our life, in a caring and inquiring way, it would dramatically change our life. The relationship to life would be quite different from the old one. And one might say, right, before mountains are no longer mountains. In other words, before practice, in other words, for people to come into spiritual work and practice, there has to be some doubt. People who have a, a very fixed, clear view that life is like this. Responsible people live like this. You know, sometimes it's parents, sometimes it's educators, sometimes it's employers, or whatever, say that. And if one has some doubt, then one might say, before practice, mountains are no longer mountains. And then one begins practice, and still mountains are no longer mountains. In and yet in the course and the rhythm of the practice, one is looking at me, sorry, my and mine. 
M-I-N-E, the possessive factor, carefully. That would make changes. It would be very freeing. It would bring, as Corrado mentioned yesterday evening, a much more spacious relationship to life. But is that enough? Is that what spirituality is? To be free from mind, free from possessiveness, free from clinging, which is a constant practice for all of us as human beings. Perhaps we're in that we have to go a little bit more subtly. Subtly or directly, perhaps to the, the body itself, to the mind itself. When there is, as I mentioned, say pain and discomfort with the body, all the typical conditioning will come in like a rocket and make a claim on it. Either wanting to get rid of it, wanting to find out what caused it, or whatever it might be, or with the emotions, or whatever. What about if we don't do any of that? Do nothing about it whatsoever. No labels, no labelling, no um, confirming it as belonging to oneself, not saying anything about it whatsoever, not having a description for what one is experiencing. That it's just sensation. It's just something which is occurring. And now every day mind will say, oh, he or she has pain, and, well, bad luck. <laughs> and, um, and I have pain, oh, this is terrible. <coughs> and already the division has come in. Every day mind is at work. But how about if we're not making that kind of division? There is just this which is occurring. One isn't saying there's nobody behind it, there's nobody at home, there's no uh, relationship to it. Not drawing any conclusions in any way. Not looking for any causes, not trying to find out from the past. Just this is the event, here and now. And let it be an event in life. What would that mean? In that, we're still saying mountains are no longer mountains in the course of the practice. Still not saying this is the way things are, not drawing any conclusions in any way, but just bare attention. The bare phenomena of life, non-possessively, non-ownership. If we're just observing it, this pain, this whatever it, it might be, heart, mind, body, wh wherever, and we're not drawing anything from it, not using it to describe ourselves, to say where we are, 
not using it in reference to the past. It means that in the observation, in the being with, we're not taking, it's so important this, any meaning from it. None whatsoever. Not drawing any meaning out of the experience. Look, we've done it our whole life, haven't we? Every time something is happening in our life, we're thinking, we're deciding, we're drawing conclusions, we're shaping our life around this, whatever the experience is, pleasant or um, beautiful or uh, ugly and painful or whatever, and out of these experiences it shapes the whole life's direction. Now we're saying, let's for once not do that. One might say, my God, if I don't do this, if I don't draw conclusions, and if I don't, that means I won't make decisions. If I don't make decisions, I'll be sitting cross-legged here for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know. I mean, I'll get hungry after a few hours. <laughs> you know, and already, in coming out of this everyday mind, already difficulties there, doubts there. We feel we won't be able to function, we won't be able to live. I would say the opposite. I would say one who is, thinks that this world is nothing but things, people, me in relationship to things, and people living that way, that isn't living. That isn't living. That's wandering on from one thing to another. So to actually make a, a shift in which our past, our personal history and all the accumulations, beneficial and otherwise, have no real importance. It's like it was all a lifetime ago, even if it was only one hour ago. And so that we are just here, and there is these experiences, and we're not drawing any meaning out of them. So that they are rather, if I may say, rather empty from our standpoint. When the, what, what would that mean for us? What would it mean for us biologically and emotionally and psychologically and therefore totally? Isn't it that the old mind, the familiar, the everyday mind, no matter how much we like to think otherwise, the old mind is a very fixed mind. It's fixed in what it does. It's fixed in what it likes and what it doesn't like. It's fixed in its way of relating to experiences and sensations. And 
No matter whether we travel a lot or whether we don't travel, whether we meditate a lot or whether we don't meditate a lot, whether we work or whether we don't, what we see if we look typically at ourselves, it's all rather fixed. And it goes on being fixed <coughs> because it's fixed by the mode of the idea about ourselves and the fixed view, the world is like this, the world is like that, and here I am trying to get along with it in the best way that I can. And no amount of thoughts will change that reality. Because the thoughts made it in the first place like that. The thoughts fixed this reality for us this way. They didn't create reality. Thought can't do that. How can thought, something so small, fix something so vast? But what thoughts have done for us is to fix our way of looking. And so our meditations and our observations are an enormous challenge because we're being asked to let go of our reference points. The use of our thoughts to, <coughs> to confirm and state and decide. And we're saying, maybe in just being with what the experience actually is, what, it, what that feeling is, what the sensation is, whether it's pleasant and beautiful, whether it's unpleasant and very painful, maybe something can happen in the psyche which thought can't get to happen. <coughs> the old conventional world is, is full of birth, ageing, sickness and death, coming and going, gain and loss, health and sickness, praise and blame. That's the, that's the world that you and I know every day of our life. And so we're seeing if we can probe and look deeper into things, so that that world, conventional world, and familiar and agreeable world for us is not the nature of things. It's not the ultimate truth of things. It's not the true reality. It's conventional. It's it's by common parlance, common agreement amongst women and men walking on the earth. And once, once we get a sense of that inwardly and deeply that this conventional world is not ultimate in its nature, then there's a possibility of going deeper. And as I say, it's not to say in our relationship to life that we're denying the world, 
How can one understand the world if one is denying it? One must explore it and look into it and, and go into it. And it's not also that we're trying to say, <coughs> do this practice and then you'll know what true reality is. And then we set up this wonderful image. We'll find true reality. We'll find the absolute. We'll find God. We'll find enlightenment and so forth. Only an idiot promises that. We've done that as well. Philosophically, in religion, we have said, this isn't the true world, this isn't the real true world, therefore there is this. Get this. Sometimes G-O-D, sometimes Buddha nature, sometimes reality, sometimes whatever. And that fixes something else. So we're fed up with this world, okay, let's go for, the, for this other one. It sounds much better. <laughs> so in neither grasping onto this conventional world, nor having the promise at all of any other thing better, this is where we are. Before practice, mountains are no longer mountains. While practicing, mountains are no longer mountains. And in that, there is still, <coughs> of course, the wish, the heart's wish, to find some security. And just as that occurs in conventional life, just as that occurs in religious life with beliefs, just as that in, in, uh, occurs in philosophical life and in spiritual inquiry, there is a search for security. To feel secure, in this case secure in knowing, secure in realization. I wonder if we can let go of this too. So there's no place for heart and mind to turn to. No promises of anything better. No absolutism being offered. And that all that one has is inquiry, the ad adventure and challenge which goes with it, observation, seeing into things, a deep awareness of the influence of concepts and language and words, which fixes things, and proceeding in that way. And obviously in that is not a, an easy road. And there's no simple solution and answer. So not surprisingly, people will take refuge in philosophy, in beliefs, in theology, in the world, or whatever. And if we don't take our refuge anywhere at all, 
but just inquire. Just observe. Just stay with what's actually happening. And then perhaps we can see what, what arises. What it means to do that. What it means to challenge totally the totality of our conventional mind. And perhaps in that inquiry, joy may come, and interest, and vitality. And maybe that inquiry doesn't have an end to it. Maybe mountains are no longer mountains before practice, during practice, after realization. Maybe all this is to be thoroughly explored through. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the relationship to life. May all beings see if there is a relationship to life. So let's have a couple of minutes quiet period together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.